our service, and we're going to take a little bit of time here now and look into Scripture together. And uh, we've been studying the life of David, and so we are going to press on. We've got this Sunday and next Sunday we'll be finishing our, our study on David. Um, so I'm looking forward to the next two Sundays with you studying this text. So let's pray together, and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you that we can find rest and peace in you and in Christ. Lord, we're so thankful for that truth that we just heard. God, we pray now that as we study Scripture together that we would uh, calm our hearts and reflect on what we read today and, and learn from what we see. There is examples in this story, in this account, that we can emulate and we can learn from, and then there are others that we would not want to be like, examples that would not be pleasing to you. And so I pray that as we study Scripture together this morning that we would be reminded of the importance of living a life that is obedient to you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, periods of transition are simply a part of life. Sometimes these transitions, these changes go very smoothly. Other times they are filled with anxiety and trouble. Our family's in the midst of a transition in that our, our daughter is heading off to college. That's new territory for us. And seeing her start her life going off to school and moving a few hours away is a transition for us. I was thinking this morning, birthdays do this to you, I guess, just how quickly life comes at you. Uh, when you're in elementary school, my birthday being July 17th, we, in the Northeast, we got out of school about July, or excuse me, June, rather, the 10th. And so from June 10 to July 17 seemed like about six months in my little mind. And then from July 17 until after Labor Day when we began school in the Northeast, that seemed like another six months. So the summer seemed like a year to me. Now a year seems like about four or five days. So time is very, comes at you very quickly. Transitions happen, life happens, things don't remain the same. And in our study of David's life, we have now reached a very important, significant transition in David's life. It's actually not only a transition in David's life, it is a major transition for the kingdom. In this time of uncertainty, as David now is reaching this point in his life when he is no longer going to be king for very much longer, that it creates what transitions of leadership often create. It creates potential for problems, potential for conflict, and a good old-fashioned power struggle. And so, as we know, transitions can be very difficult. They're hard. Transitions in leadership particularly can be very troublesome, and we see an example of that in the story that we will look at this morning. We're going to be in the book of First Kings this morning. We're going to be looking at the entire first chapter over the next few minutes. And the book of 1 Kings begins with what I just mentioned. It begins with a power struggle. David has already experienced this once with one of his children. One of his own sons has already tried to usurp his authority, that being Absalom. And now another one of his sons, a man by the name of Adonijah, is going to now try to usurp King David's authority a second time. It's interesting to me, we'll look at Adonijah in just a little bit, but his name means, translated from Hebrew, my Lord is Jehovah. When you talk about a man that doesn't 
live up to his name. And so let's take a look at 1 Kings chapter 1 and look at this power struggle and how it develops and why it develops and what happens as a result of this conflict. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 1, begin reading in verse number 1. Now King David was old and advanced in years. He would be approximately 70 years old at this time. I don't know about you, but 70 doesn't sound all that old to me any longer. But the text tells us that he is old. He is advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. He was struggling maintaining his body temperature. Therefore, his servant said to him, let a young woman be sought for my lord the king and let her wait on the king and in his service, let her life let, his, let her lie, rather, in your arms, that my lord, the king, may be warm. Now that seems like a very curious description. Let's just explain that for just a moment. This young woman's name is Abishag. We'll be introduced to her throughout the course of the next few verses. She's chosen as, in a sense, a nurse, someone to come and to take care of David, to watch over him. We have this picture here that she was to lie with him to to join him in the bed in order to help him maintain his body temperature ancient medical practices believe that the warmth that she could provide helped those that were sick to get better it would help strengthen them and so they find her notice she is a young woman she is a person who is not married this is a person that would have the energy to take care of a dying man. She is also a person who has no family responsibilities. So she has the opportunity to care for him literally 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This was to be her position, her job. Verse 3, so they sought for a beautiful woman. I just talked a little bit about uh, Abishag. Throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was in service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now, what that is talking about there is that he did not have any kind of physical relationship with this woman. Some commentators have interjected here that by not the phrase not knowing her is indicating that he was senile, he was confused, and he couldn't piece together what was happening around him. If you know the Old Testament at all, that the fact that he did not know her, that was often used as a euphemism to talk about a sexual relationship. So there is no physical intimacy that is taking place between David and this woman. She is there simply as a person to care for her. And again, in the ancient medical world, they believe that there was some medicinal advantage to her lying next to him to try to keep him warm and so that is what is taking place here there is no physical relationship between uh, David and and Abishag you know before we go any further I was thinking about the opening verses of this book the opening verses of this chapter when we look at the description of David that he was old and he was advanced in years it is interesting to me that in our culture, we are a culture, we are a country that very much celebrates youthfulness. We celebrate things that are young. We celebrate people that are young. And I was thinking back when I was a kid at some of the young people that 
I looked up to and people that were bigger than life when I was a kid. Joe Namath was one of them. He is now doing Medicare commercials on television. <laughs> Dan Marino was one. He's now doing Nutrisystem commercials. They're old men now. And so when we think about usefulness, we think about being young, here is a fact that you need to remember, you need to pack away in your mind. You will not be young forever. Usefulness is a transitory moment. Even our childhood, we think, as I joked a little while ago, when your kids, the years seem like eternities, and now they just seem to keep flying by, and we just keep throwing calendars away constantly because the years are just clipping by quickly, quickly. Life is truly short on this earth. And while we look at David's health here as he is dying, he is not much longer for this world. He is going to pass away. He is, whatever word works for you, to be blunt, he's going to die. This mighty man, this warrior, this man who has been a king, this man who has led armies, this man who has obediently led the people of God bigger than life, he's on his deathbed. Now here's a happy birthday message from me to you. You're going to die one day. And prayerfully, we all die at a ripe old age, much older than 70, I pray. But the reality is, death is a reality. We can run from it, we can hide from it, we can pretend it's not going to happen, we can celebrate youthfulness all that we want. But as Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, that youthfulness is vanity. It is short-lived. It is not going to last forever. Now, I say that this morning because I was thinking about the fact that death, while it is certainly a reality to each and every one of us, physical death is going to happen to all of us. We also understand, I would suggest, I would submit to you that physical death is not the end of your story or mine just as it wasn't the end of David's story. Because we are, by nature, not only physical flesh and blood, we are spiritual by nature. And that what sets us apart from our dog, that I almost put oatmeal in his dish this morning to eat out of, I really wasn't going to eat out of it, I caught myself, thankfully. But what separates me from my dog, many things do, for one, he is 16 years old. He still can't make his own breakfast. <laughs> he still can't let himself out to go to the bathroom. He still can't dial a telephone. He has yet to wish me happy birthday. <laughs> Never. There's a big difference between us and the animal kingdom. You are created in the image of Almighty God with a soul that will spend eternity somewhere. My dog will not. But you will. And so as we look at David's emaciated situation, he's lying in bed, I'm going to suggest strongly. He's not senile, he's not losing his mind. He is just simply physically worn out. He's tired, he's old, he's dying. But David was going to live for eternity somewhere, and so will you. 
And we sang this morning about God's amazing grace, that through faith in Christ, through faith in Christ alone, that we can have confidence that when our physical bodies fizzle out and we die, that we can spend eternity through the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary with our Creator forever. And so death, we don't glorify, we don't glorify in it, but we don't run from it either. It's reality. And the reality is you and I will spend eternity somewhere. And the question is, where will you spend eternity? David understood faith. David understood as a man who had a heart after God, that he had a personal relationship with God, that while David, in a few a few verses, he's going to be off the scene. But David is as alive today as he was when he was young, and he's in the presence of his creator, and you and I will be one day as well if we know Christ personally. And so I don't know your reaction when you read these verses, but to me, it's kind of hard for me as a pastor to think through the messages we preached on the vitality of David and his tremendous acts of courage, and now he is sitting on the door of heaven. And in this, his son, another one of his children, assumes that his father is no longer fit to be king. And so now he is going to take steps to usurp his father's authority. Notice verse 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself. Oh, boy. Nasty old pride. Here we go again. Saying, I will be king. By the way, he didn't say this once. This was a repetitive claim for Adonijah. He wanted to be king. He longed to be king. He is exalting himself. He is lifting himself up. And he's decrying again and again, I will be king. Now tell me if you've ever heard verses very similar to what we read next. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Have we lived this story before? This is exactly what Absalom did when he was trying to overthrow his father. Now Adonijah is doing the exact same thing. His father, David, had never, this is heartbreaking, at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Let me put that in modern English. He never told his son no. He never disciplined him. He never challenged him. He never held him accountable for his decisions. Because David, if you remember, once he chooses to sin with Bathsheba, after that, it is hands-off parenting. There was no teaching. There was no instruction. There was no holding his child accountable. He simply said to Adonijah, go live your life however you choose. David became indifferent. He became withdrawn from his children. His father, the text tells us, never questioned him, never challenged him, never held him accountable. Oh boy, the next verse is even, the next words are even more troubling. He was also a very handsome man. Here we go again. 
and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, a man who has been faithful to David for years, the son of Zariah, and with Abathar the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shimei and Rei and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. The battle lines are drawn. Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatted cattle by the serpent stone which is beside Envergol. And he invited all of his brothers and the king's sons and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan, the prophet, or Benaniah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. There is this meal that is going to take place as he is now self-promoting himself to want to be king, to desire to be king. By the way, it's not sinful in and of itself to desire to be the king or to desire a position of leadership. The first qualification of a pastor says, he who desires the office of a bishop desires a good thing. The desire in and of itself was not the problem. The problem was Adonijah was a spoiled, selfish, undisciplined man who had never been corrected by his father and he believed he deserved to be king. It was his right to be king. That he would be a person who would lead the nation and lead it into prosperity. His father, in his mind, was no longer fit to be king. And so Adonijah, in a very real sense, is throwing a little celebration for himself. It turns into an impromptu coronation in which he gathers people like Joab, who have been faithful to David for years. And he brings in other leaders from Judah and he gathers them together and they are now having a meal. It is, in a sense, a time of celebration for their new king. By the way, we have this mention of the stone of Zoheleth. It's located just south of Mount Zion where the city of David has now been established. Envergal, we mentioned that in the reading, is one of the two main strings in the, springs rather, in the Kidron Valley that provided water for Jerusalem. Now what is curious to me is given the ease in which Adonijah garners support for his campaign, this is already a divided nation. There is already problems here. It's possible that some of the people who spent time after Absalom's failure were waiting for the next person to come along to jump on the next bandwagon. You know, as I think about these first 10 verses, I want to offer you three applications that we see in the early parts of the story. Number one, people often believe they are the exception when it comes to failure. Absalom's attempted insurrection failed miserably. And it's curious to me that as Adonijah begins his insurrection, he begins it the same way. He starts doing exactly what his brother had done, and the text doesn't tell us, but I can't help but wonder, Adonijah may very well have thought something like this, my brother wasn't good enough, wasn't gifted enough to pull this off, but I will. And not only that, 
Was he believing possibly in his own abilities, figuring his father was now in a position he could do nothing about it, that he would claim the victory that Absalom was not able to accomplish? So people often believe that we are the exception when it comes to failure or when it comes to sin. Well, I can commit that act of sin. I will get away with it. I'm better than everybody else. I will be more successful than someone else. Number two, I think we see an example here of when people rely on their own capabilities and worldly wisdom rather than on a godly character. Once again, we have a person who has good looks. I don't know if he had really good hair or not, like Absalom. I'm not sure about that. But he had good looks. He had a favored status. He had parental indifference. David had let him do pretty much whatever he wanted to do, but he did not have the character that it was going to take to be a successful leader. Think about our culture for a moment. It's the beautiful, the popular, the successful, and the immoral that are given way too much influence in our culture. We need people of proven character people that will do the right thing for the right reasons. And then the third application from these first few verses is that people are often driven by pride and self-promotion to get what they believe they deserve. You know, it's interesting to me, one of the classic stories in the entire Old Testament would be the calling of Moses. Do, Do you remember when God came to Moses And he called him to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, and he was going to be the leader. Do you remember Moses' reaction to that? Moses said, in so many words, God, you got the wrong person. Not me. I can't speak eloquently. I've got these limitations God, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Nope, God, you got the wrong guy. And for, for years, pastors are kind of coming down on Moses. You know, he should have been willing to go. He, he should have been more bold in his faith. And as I think about it more and more, what would you want Moses to have said then? You know, God, it's about time you got the right guy for this job. You picked a good one here, God, when you picked me, Moses, to be the leader because I am definitely the most qualified. I mean, I had time in Pharaoh's house. God, good call. I think I'm much more happy with Moses' hesitation than with arrogance. And so when Adonijah is boldly self-proclaiming, I will be in charge, I will be king. And the text tells us, Bluntly, He wasn't saying he wanted to be king to serve anybody. He was exalting himself. Boy, that sounds like our culture today, doesn't it? It's all about me. It's all about what I can do. It's all about my abilities. I latched on to the phrase years ago to be a reluctant leader, and I think there's wisdom in that. Wisdom in making sure that you're leaning and trusting on God's wisdom and direction, not your own abilities and capabilities the way that Adonijah is here in this text. Well, the account goes on, verse 11. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king and David our Lord does not know it? Again, this isn't saying he doesn't know it because he's 
senile and he can't understand, the information simply hasn't gotten to him. And quite frankly, given his physical condition, he may not have been actively involved in day-to-day operations of the kingdom as much as he had been previously. Now therefore, verse 12, come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. This is a life or death situation. And by the way, I don't think Nathan and Bathsheba are manipulating here. I don't think they're trying to backdoor this this conversation in any way. But there is a very real threat to Bathsheba. And more, more importantly, there is a very real threat to Solomon. Verse 13, Nathan says, Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. Now, the scriptures don't record for us when this promise was made from David to Bathsheba. But what we do know is that in 1 Corinthians 22, 5, excuse me, 1 Chronicles 22, verses 5 through 11, we find this description coming from David. For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. Then he called Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son... I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me saying, you, shall, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed too much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all the surrounding enemies for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in the days. I won't read any more of that, but there was this divine promise, this divine calling that God had given that Solomon was going to be the next king. Verse 15, so Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old and Abishag, the Shumanite, was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and out of respect and paid homage to the king. And the king said, what do you desire? She said to him, my Lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord, your God, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign up after me and he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my Lord, the king, do not know it. And then verse 19, I forsake a time, I won't read that but he gives a she gives a description now of what is happening that he is now at this sort of meal that is placing himself as the king then down to verse 21 otherwise it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that i and my son will be counted offenders we will become enemies of the state adonijah will put us to death Verse 22, while she was speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in, and and the text doesn't say this, but it's indicated that Bathsheba, when Nathan enters the prophet, 
Bathsheba exits. And they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord, the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fatted cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army, and Abathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him, saying, Long live King Adonijah! But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, has not been invited. He Has this thing been brought about by you, my lord, the king? And have you not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him? And so Nathan here puts this kind of in the form of a question. Did you do this? Was this your doing? Is this something that we were not made aware of, that you have decided to make Adonijah king? Again, verse 28, clearly Bathsheba had, out of their social norms, she had left the room, and King David calls her back in. She comes in before the king. Verse 29, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of, out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your, your son shall reign after me. He shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do it this day. He's clearly of sound mind. Then Bathsheba bowed her face to the ground and paid homage to the king. And she said, may my Lord, King David, live forever. Let's read a few more verses together and then we'll comment a little bit more. King David said, call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. And the king said to them, take with you your servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule. And bring him down to Gihon. Now that's an interesting comment. He takes Solomon out. He wants them paraded through the city. And he says, make sure that when Solomon goes through the city, he's riding on a mule. And not just any mule. He's riding on my mule. It's one that I personally own. Why would David say this? Well, riding on a mule in that time was an illustration that the king was putting himself in the place of being a servant of the people. It was to be a sign of humility. It was to be uh, also a sign of unity, that the king was saying to his people, I'm not above you, I am one of you, I am here to serve you, I am here to bring unity to our kingdom. And when David says, make sure it is my mule... He wanted the people to know, very likely, they had seen David ride this mule before. They had likely seen him on this animal himself. That when they saw David's son Solomon riding on David's mule, this would be a clear indication that this was David's proclamation undermining Adonijah's claim to the throne and saying that this is the person that I have chosen. Now, let's jump ahead a little bit to verse 39. Then Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy that the earth was split by their noise. Okay, figure of speech there. Now notice what happens at the other party. Going on, by the way, within hearing distance. 
Adonijah is busy having his own coronation, his own self-declared coronation, that he's declared himself to be king. Verse 41, and Adonijah and all of his guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. Again, in my sanctified imagination, I see Adonijah sitting there feeling pretty good about himself. He's getting ready to be king. They've enjoyed this wonderful meal. He has his beautiful napkin wiping off the sides of his lips, and he can almost taste the power. He can taste the kingdom that is about to be his. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, What does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abathar, the priest, came. And Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring good news. And Jonathan answered Adonijah, Oh, no, 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 no. For our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Bananiah the son of Jehoiada. By the way, there's no prophet and priest at Adonijah's self-proclaimed installation service. And they had him ride on the king's mule, verse 44. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet had anointed him king at Gihon. And they have gone out before them rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Jump down to verse 48. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. This is not good if you're Adonijah. Now, notice what Adonijah's friends do. The war is happening over here. The trumpets have sounded. The oil has been put on Solomon. He's been placed on the throne by David himself. And watch what Adonijah's good friends do best buds do. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. I'm out of here. This seemed like a really good idea when we started this insurrection, but I think I'm going to go home now. I think I've had enough of this whole rebellion thing because it didn't go so well for Absalom, and this is not looking very positive here, Adonijah. We'll see you later. And Adonijah feared Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Now that seems weird. Why do you do that? In the tabernacle, on the altar, there was these horns that someone, when they were seeking asylum, you can look at Exodus and find an example of this, that if someone was seeking an asylum because they had committed a crime, they could go and they could hold on to the altar and they were then untouchable. They couldn't be put to death. They couldn't be executed for whatever they had done. So Adonijah being smart, he's not really up for being executed on this day. So he runs, he grabs a hold of the altar. Then it was told Solomon, verse 51, behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. I'm not letting go. I'm going to stay right here and I'm going to hold on to this thing until Solomon gives me his word that he will not kill me. And Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if his wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent and they brought him down from the altar 
and he came and paid homage to the king, King Solomon, and Solomon said to Adonijah, go home. Go to your house. Let's draw some applications from the second part of this story. Three more. Three applications from what we learned from Adonijah, and then three applications of what we learned from Solomon. First, what do we learn from Adonijah's life? What do we learn from his activity in this chapter? Number one, pride produces destruction. The proud, those with an inflated ego, those that believe they deserve to be in charge, they deserve leadership. If, by the way, if you can't serve under somebody else's leadership with a right spirit and with a right heart, you will never be a successful leader. Never. Adonijah couldn't follow somebody else. Adonijah, like so many other people filled with pride, was a slow learner. He never learned that eventually his pride was going to get him in trouble. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 13 and following, Adonijah decides to ask for Abishag's hand in marriage. Remember her? King David's nurse, although there was never a physical relationship with them, she did, in the people's mind, become a part of his harem. Therefore, when Adonijah requests her hand in marriage, he is requesting a part of the king's harem, which is also a sign of an insurrection because he's trying to claim David as having a connection with him as king. And guess what? Solomon kills him. Prideful people just don't learn. Adonijah didn't learn by his failure when Solomon spared his life, and yet he raised, raises up again against Solomon and against David's kingdom. So we learn that self-pride and self-promotion produces destruction. Number two from Adonijah, we learn that self-indulgence produces heartache to yourself and other people. Adonijah ruined many people's lives caused hardship hardship in David's family and in those that followed him number three we learn from Adonijah that foolishness produces a loss of trust the instant that Adonijah's followers got wind of what was happening they ran they didn't trust him anymore but we learn three positive applications from Solomon who's really not even in this chapter very often and yet, number one, I would submit to you from Solomon, we learn this. Humility produces blessing. Solomon did absolutely nothing to promote himself. Solomon did nothing to demand that David crown him king. Nothing. There was no hint on Solomon's part, that he was beating daddy's door down, saying, hey, that's mine. You better put that crown on my head. We don't see that. We see that humility is something that Solomon is portraying by not demanding the king's crown, but also we see this humility in the form of self-control. 
When Adonijah is sitting there holding on to the altar after everything he's just done to Solomon, trying to take over the kingship, which, to be fair, was promised to him by his father, but he now is standing there and pleading for his life, what would you do? He just led an insurrection against your father. He just tried to take the crown from you. I don't know about you, but very many people would want to execute him on the spot. And yet Solomon practices self-control in his humility and decides to give his brother a second chance. His brother fails, but the failure was on Adonijah, not on Solomon. And then the third application I would pull from Solomon in this chapter is that wisdom produces trust. Solomon is going to be known as a man filled with wisdom. Arguably, Solomon is going to become the wisest, most powerful king whom Israel will ever have. In fact, they are going to flourish more under Solomon's leadership than King David's. Who would you rather have as your king? Adonijah? A self-promoting, arrogant, selfish, undisciplined man who wants to be king only because he wants the accolades that come with it and the benefits that come with it? Or would you want to follow a man like Solomon? Far from perfect, to be sure, but a man of humility, a man who develops trust within his kingdom. You know, times of transition are very difficult. We all go through them. We have periods of our life where things are changing. And the people of Israel are in a transition time. David will soon be dead. And this creates this vacuum in which Adonijah was very willing to fill. And yet, through his own sinful actions, eventually he is put to death. And once again, God's protection is upon David. It is, a, it is upon Solomon. It is upon the people to whom God has called. And so when you think about your own transitions in your life, they may not be a matter of life and death the way that they were here for Solomon, the way that they were for Bathsheba and others. But while times of transition can be difficult, we can, during these times, learn to rest in God's care and prayerfully seek God's leading. And we can manage them with wisdom and with insight. God had a plan for Israel. Absalom tried to undermine it, cost him his life. Adonijah tried to undermine it, cost him his life. David, while far from perfect, as we've studied, remains faithful to the Lord all the way to the point where he is on his deathbed. A man who shows character, and next week we'll look at when David finally hands his kingdom off to Solomon, and Solomon becomes the next king. Life and death. Death is a matter of reality for us. And yet by God's grace, we know we can rest in his goodness and care. And so as we look at the life of Adonijah, may we never be consumed with this kind of pride. May we never be consumed with this kind of self-righteousness and self-promotion. Instead, may we be men and women that show the kind of character that we see in David and in Solomon 
living our lives under the authority of Almighty God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and this text today to look at an example of a man who was consumed with self-desire, self-promotion, and it cost him his life. And Lord, we are also reminded of your mercy and goodness as you lead David, and you're going to lead Solomon now in the future generation to continue uh, to seek after you and to follow you. May we be people like, like Solomon, like David. God, as we close today, I pray that if there is someone here this morning that is not sure of their salvation, and we didn't talk much about that, but there is a sense of reality that we all will face physical death, even David did. And yet, Lord, we know that we have hope in Christ of eternal salvation. If there's someone here today that has questions about that or have never fully understood that, I pray that before we leave this morning that they would get help and get their questions answered today. God bless these closing moments of our service. I pray for believers as we wrestle through our own hearts, our own desires. May they always be pure. And God bless this closing moment and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Scott West is going to come and lead us in a song today as we end our time. Amen. Let's stand. And I'd like us all to try singing this song that Kira sang for us earlier in our service, this beautiful setting of a traditional text. Uh, let's all try singing it together. My faith has found a resting place, not in my work or deed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument, I need no other plea, it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Jesus saves, this sends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul I come to him, he'll never cast me out. I need no other argument, I need no enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Amen. Uh, if I could make just one quick announcement that I forgot to say at the beginning of the service. For our senior adults, <clears throat> senior adults, don't forget about our trip a week from tomorrow down to the aquarium at Fort Fisher, and then taking the ferry over to Southport for dinner. Uh, I believe we do still have room, but this morning is the deadline to sign up. So if you want to go on that, please uh, find a sign-up sheet and put your name on it. And also be turning your money in, please, to Miss Margaret. Thank you. I just want to thank you again for being here this morning. I want to encourage you as you leave today, if you're able to help continue to financially support the ministry. We do have the giving boxes available in the back. You can continue to give online and also text to give. And we just always thank you so much for your faithful support of Grace Baptist Church. God bless you, and may the Lord give you a great day. Thanks for being here.